Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Wednesday, August 25th, 2010. And our special guests are Kelly Bergener and Fenton Broadhead from BYU-Idaho. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. So how do you like your students to address you? Because however that is, I'll address you today. Do you like to be called sir, brother, uh, doctor? However you feel most comfortable. Fenton's fine with me. Uh, Kelly's fine with me. Okay, I'm going to call you Kelly and Fenton, and thank you so much for being here. The Future of Education is sponsored by Illuminate and Learn Central. Learn Central is the project I work on. For Illuminate, it is a free social network for educators that has Illuminate baked in. We sure hope that you'll come and take advantage of it. The Global Education Conference has been announced, and the call for presentations is up five days in November at globaleducationconference.com. Multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks, and all for free. This is a highly inclusive event. We're really encouraging participation from all over the world. We think it's going to be a ton of fun. So please do visit that site and sign up and let us know if you're interested in participating. Coming up on the future of education, tomorrow George Siemens on connectivism. Vicki Abelli's next week on her movie The Race to Nowhere. Sorry about that. Uh, Craig Watkins on the Young and the Digital. Charlene Lee on Open Leadership. This is not an educational book, as most of you who know Charlene might be aware, but it is a really brilliant book about the use of social media uh, for organizations, and I think it will have implications for us. Uh, and then Rob Darrow on Global Education, and lots more fun coming up, you can see there. If you've missed a Future of Education session, all of the recordings are up at futureofeducation.com. Yesterday, we heard from Carol Cushman on her student project called Fires in the Mind. Wonderful work. If you missed that, really encourage you to listen to that recording. Amber Mack talked about power friending. Carol Dweck from Stanford on mindset. And Linda Darling-Hammond from Stanford on solving the educational crisis. Uh, lots of great interviews up there. We sure hope there's something that uh, will carry you through your drive time. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. There are different ways for you to participate. At the bottom of the participant window, you'll see a smiley face, a clapping hand, um, a confused look, or a thumbs down. Those are ways for you to express your feelings. You can also use the hand with the green up arrow if you'd like to raise your hand and ask a question when we get to the Q&A period. Uh, before doing that, we do encourage you to go up to Tools, Audio, run the Audio Setup Wizard just to make sure your mic is working if you haven't used it in Illuminate before. I recommend at this point going up to View Layouts and switching to the Wide Layout. It will be easier to see the chat in the screen, uh, and it's typically just a better uh, way of viewing things. And now we're going to let you let us know where you're participating from. I'm pulling up a map here, and to the left of the map, you'll see a laser pointer. It's a wand with a red star at the end. Some of you know the drill already. Click on that and click on the map, and let us know where you're listening from. So a North America-centric crowd, although somebody's over in the Mediterranean. I'm wondering if that's Israel. Feel free to put in the chat your location, the time, and the temperature. That's a lot of fun. Someone may be in Portugal. 
Well, wherever you are listening from or if you're listening to the recording, we are sure glad that you have joined us today. Okay, so today's interview is about BYU-Idaho. BYU-Idaho is a private religious institution, and we're going to talk about their approach to teaching and learning. Our guests are Kelly Bergener, who's currently serving as the Associate Academic Vice President for Instruction, and Dr. Fenton Broadhead, who's the Academic Vice President. BYU-Idaho is part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints education system, and the church is frequently refer referred to as the Mormon Church, or by the abbreviation LDS. We won't avoid focusing on the religious aspects of the school today because of that, the ability uh, that those aspects have to ex help explain the learning model. And we'll assume that our listeners will find lessons inside and outside of the LDS context. I do have a daughter who is currently attending BYU. I have a son who attended LDS Business College. And I am a member of the Mormon Church. I think this may have helped me arrange the interview. So Kelly and Fenton, BYU-Idaho came up when I interviewed Anya Kamenetz for her book DIYU, and she makes specific mention of BYU-Idaho. She saw the university as unique for its low costs, its focus on teaching over research, its year-round schedule, its integration of online courses, and its relentless measurement of learning outcomes. I wonder if you'd seen that reference in the book and how you'd felt about the portrayal of the school. I haven't, I haven't seen the reference in the book, but I read through that review this morning as I was looking at your site, and basically I could give a little bit of an explanation there on the direction we've headed in, over the last few years. Uh, when President Clark arrived here in 2005, we focused on three imperatives, three directional focuses. One, to improve the overall quality of what we're doing. Two, to increase the number of students that we serve and allow more students to attend the university. And three, to lower our relative costs. And in comparison with most goals, they seem like they're uncountered to each other. But we found some interesting ways to, to deal with those challenges. Uh, one, we have the year-round calendar. And in fact, now we have three semesters and also have another unique summer session during the month of August. So basically, we have students in on campus all of the time. Um, we've worked on reducing uh, the low enrolled sections at the university. We try to be efficient with our classrooms. We have no faculty rank, and uh, all of our faculty are paid uh, the same pay scale. It doesn't matter what department or area you come from. Um, but we mentioned the calendar, and, and uh, I think that in general we're trying to be a, a fairly efficient model that can benefit more in education with serving more and be at a higher quality level. So I thought it might make sense to, to actually clear, clear up one aspect of that, which is because the school is owned and operated by the church, some of the cost benefits are because the church is, is helping to support the school. Is that right? That's, that's correct. There's no question that because of the appropriated funds that come from the church, we can help reduce uh, the cost of the student. And in comparison, the most private institutions and most state institutions are probably one of the lowest cost institutions by way of tuition. But at the same time, we're taking on the responsibility of maintaining our costs and controlling those. So even though there's heavy appropriation from the church, we look at all means that we can by way of controlling costs 
in our annual budgets and, and what we're doing there. So both of those work together, our increased efficiency, but also the support of the church. So th there is a religious context here, and that's not going to be familiar to most of the audience members. So is it okay if we start with your uh, the three processes or the process, the three elements of the process first, and then we can kind of move to the principles by way of explanation? Yeah, this is Kelly, and I'll, I'll take that one if I can. It really does help us in understanding the learning model if you have to take a one-minute uh, primer in LDS theology. Uh, first, you, to understand these principles that we're going to talk about here in a moment, you really have to understand that we have the belief that there's a living God, that uh, we are his literal children here, and uh, all... Uh, all people are his children. Uh, he's deeply interested in our lives, and he actively tries to help us, guide us, bless us. And uh, for a number of important reasons, he wants us to learn to develop our minds and expand our abilities and capacity. So I think that's really critical in part because there's such an emphasis in our church on education. But I also think that what, what uh, might be interesting to somebody who is not familiar with our faith would be this idea that uh, what you've just described then means that each individual has potential and, and ought to be treated accordingly. So I would say from the standpoint that we understand and believe that every individual has potential and has value and that education is one of the most important investments that we feel is part of an individual's life and direction. That's why the church has such a heavy focus on investing in education. So as we've looked at the process of trying to help educate our students, we've looked at a number of things. We've looked at past church doctrine. We've looked at current pedagogy. We've looked at a combination of things that help derive these principles. But once again, going back to what Kelly mentioned, the value of the individual and the value that the church places on education has a heavy impact on the development of the principles and the process. So I think what's so fascinating to me about this is that because of that uh, religious background or foundation, uh, BYU-Idaho seems to be able to implement what might be seen by others as a very progressive educational environment where you might not have the same um, consent or ability to uh, get everybody on the same page at another institution? Um, I have a very good example or comparison of that. Last year I was at a conference in New York and I met the individual who was the former president of uh, George Washington University. I think it's Steve Trackenberg. And we visited and about some of the things that have taken place on our campus all the way from the year-round calendar and the teaching load and combination of things in which he had proposed earlier at George Washington and been common knowledge. And after a discussion for a couple of days, we he came back with the conclusion that the reason you can do this on your campus is because you have a homogeneous type campus. Well, I would say that's true, but part of the reason is too we have a very committed faculty who are willing to take the commitment to move things forward that in general we feel are good for the campus as a whole. And I'll, I'll jump in, Steve, and add that there's, there's been some significant things asked of them, and they've risen to the occasion to do it, you know, to ask someone to give up a, 
a teaching assignment at a state university where they may teach uh, six months out of the year and come here and teach more than probably ten and a half months uh, is, is a big commitment. But these, these people have done it and done it willingly and uh, it's been a, an exciting thing to watch uh, occur here. We originally thought that we might have a challenge of a, I don't know whether we thought this, but some people asked us if you're going to have a challenge of attracting faculty. And see, 10 years ago we started this transition from a community college to a four-year school, a bachelor offering degree. And so as we looked at that, we have had no challenge in attracting faculty to fill the positions that we need here, and very qualified and very good faculty. Well, I know that there was also a little bit of uh, sort of national press when President Clark left uh, Harvard as the dean of Harvard Business School to become president of, of BYU-Idaho. There was a lot of press with it and, and then still today President Clark receives a lot of attention. I think uh, the fact that President Clark is here in a way added some instant credibility with some other universities. I think two things have helped us. One, the BYU name, but second, President Clark has helped us tremendously with this because he's very well respected and, and in fact recently gave a presentation at a national conference on the learning model and the comparison to teaching and other institutions. And so we're grateful for President Clark's leadership. Uh, it's exciting but it's forced us to move at a faster pace but certainly has helped us by way of recognition when President Clark came to Idaho from the Harvard Business School. So if you would, let's take, take us through the three process steps and, and if you're willing to paint the picture a little, can I give us a sense of, of how BYU-Idaho is different from most campuses because of this? Maybe I could give you a, a little bit of background on how we created this and then Kelly can help me as we lead into the steps and talk about the principles. But there was some question that came up in the idea, well, what was wrong with your teaching? And in particular, there was nothing wrong with our teaching. Our teaching was very good, uh, both as a junior college and a four-year college, and very good. But the time that President Clark came, he gave us the challenge to evaluate our teaching and to look at what we were doing. So in January of 2006, we had a faculty meeting with the majority of our faculty in, in attendance. And we spent that day examining what are the key principles for effective learning and teaching. From there, we took all of the ideas that were gathered and put those with a committee of about 15 or 16 faculty members who over the next year and a half worked on the establishment of those principles. And so I think that's a very important concept to understand that we tried to involve all of our faculty to examine what is good about education, what are key principles and foundations, and then we spent some time in trying to pull that together. Any comment, Kelly, you would add to that? No, it, it was very faculty driven and uh, really capitalized on things we were already doing as Benton points out. So in these process steps, we really followed these uh, uh, steps. First is uh, to try to reverse the model that has existed where students come to class, hear the teacher present, and then go away and do homework that reinforces what they've already heard. We've tried to turn that upside down and ask the students now to prepare in advance and come to class with 
significant uh, questions, significant problems that are designed by the faculty. And that moves us into the second process step, which is what we call teach one another. And in that, uh, the faculty sets up a, uh, an environment where the students can really uh, uh, learn from both the instructor and from their peers, the preparation that their peers have put into this. And then afterwards, we have a portion, a reflective portion, or a reflective step that we call ponder and prove. And in that step, we ask our students to uh, give them time and space to kind of open up and figure out what they heard, what they've learned, and what are the applications of that? What are the next steps of that? So in a nutshell, prepare, teach one another, and then ponder and prove. Let me mention something here, Steve, that I think is very important because in looking at the whole process of what we were doing, uh, I actually say in some ways we were ahead of some other areas, but you hear the common terms learner-centered learner learning. And in reality, that's what we were trying to move into. And so as part of this overall, and Kelly's talked about the three process steps, we started off with five principles. And the five principles are somewhat faith-based, but also applicable to all areas of teaching. And that established the climate, the environment for learning, both in a classroom and on campus. And we can touch on those later if you care to. Then we go to the process steps, which are the three that he mentioned, and those are design and delivery type steps. The simple process of how you're going to help your students be involved in this educational process. And then over the last year, we've added one more part to this, and this is the outcomes part, where we base our outcomes on five different areas, the knowledge, the skills, experience, uh, character and values, and learning how to learn. So that's kind of the package together. And those outcomes are the goals or the objectives that we hope to achieve because of the principles and process that we use. So it's very much learner-centered type education. So if, if we go, if we look at each step first, or one by one, in in the prepare step, you're really asking the students to take personal responsibility for their learning, and you're also asking the faculty to prepare, right? Yes, that's correct. In the, in the looking at this, faculty has to be able to perceive what is important about the preparation step with students and how does the faculty need to be prepared. We want to move away from the lecture mode uh, where the faculty comes to class, students come to class, and they deliver information, and it's all recall and understanding. We want to move to the mode where the faculty, member, faculty is a facilitator of learning. And so in order to facilitate that, he has to have students who invest in preparation so that they can go to the second step of teaching one another. Because say you're doing a case study, something of that nature. If they haven't invested in preparation, then they're not prepared to be a contributor to the overall learning experience, to teach one another in the process. So it's very heavily oriented to the fact that students and faculty both have to be well prepared. I would just add that it's you know kind of basic pedagogical theory and understanding that when you read something in preparation for say a quiz, you prepare to a certain level. If you are expected to come in and participate and even teach, 
you prepare with a, a significantly higher level of attention and interest in the material. So you make the point, or it's made in the website material, that uh, even though there's this common framework of prepare, teach one another, and ponder and prove, there can still be a range of teaching strategies. So what I got from the material was we have this sort of broader sense of process steps, but we recognize that in different disciplines, those may be modified to the discipline. I would mention this, that we realize that we haven't arrived at a perfect level of the implementation of our process. And we still have challenges with the confusion about what teach one another means. Challenges, for, for instance, we're not taking this and turning a class over to students by way of the students would just come and do all of the teaching. Uh, you figure out ways to make sure that you're actively involved. Uh, I saw something in, at Monterey Tech in Monterey, Mexico a few years ago that I think in a way describes some of the things we're trying to do in that teach one another. They mentioned the fact that all of their teaching was case study problem or project based. Well, we hope that faculty will find different ways of teaching one another. And all we did was set up some parameters and they have total flexibility to use those things that they think are most effective. And for instance, case study approach might be very good in the College of Business, but more of a project type approach might be better in art, or more of a problem type approach might be better in science. So all of those ways of looking at different types of teaching that apply to teaching one another in your own particular area. And we've also discovered that uh, it takes significant amount of uh, preparation on the part of the faculty and even a, a bit of restraint because it is so easy to walk into the classroom and just take over and, and deliver the lecture and to walk out. Uh, our hope is that our faculty will uh, spend that time on the front end really designing and preparing uh, significant and deep learning experiences come into the classroom and really kind of manage that experience. I think to go along with what Kelly just mentioned here, uh, the goal of the faculty should be in this teach one another to engage the learners. And engaging the learners doesn't necessarily mean you would be in a lecture mode. You're going to find a variety of things. And so engagement or active participation is part of this teaching one another. And so the faculty have to find a way that is best for doing that. I still teach an international economics course every semester. And one of the things I continue to realize is that there are better ways of teaching one another and the ability to do different types, maybe a variety of learning activities during any one particular session is very important. So by providing a campus-wide approach, you're creating a common language and a larger community of practice. Um, and, and, and I love the phrase, you know, learning to learn. Do you find that there's more of a focus on um, how to become a good learner in this environment than you've seen in other campuses? Without a doubt. And one of the things that we're doing now is we've added back another associate academic vice president to help us with teaching students the purpose of this whole process and to make sure that they're properly trained. And then Kelly works with the faculty in his particular area to make sure they're properly trained. But that's our ultimate goal, learning how to learn and maybe I'll add this phrase, uh, learning to love learning. And so we feel that in a changing world and the changing situation we're in now, 
that skills and learning how to learn are as important as the knowledge base. And on the knowledge base, we want to move past recall and understanding to the application and transfer area. I think that we're accomplishing some of the things that we want to on helping students learn how to learn. And they're catching this, they understand why, and uh, they become very active participants in what's taking place. So I do remember seeing this on the website in the last couple of days as I was looking through the material, but when I took my son to visit, I was impressed by the idea that the year-round schooling allowed for the students to participate in internships at different times of the year that they might not otherwise be able to do. Is that still an active part of the program? It's very much an active part of the program, and we've had a very aggressive internship program. In fact, as we've gone out and marketed internships, and Kelly and I both in our past experience were very actively involved in this, that we would market to businesses that we can provide you an intern in the fall or the winter or the summer. In fact, one of our biggest moves with internships came about uh, in New York with Price Waterhouse. As we were looking at internships and getting started, we were told originally you won't be able to compete in the New York market. But we ran some connections there and they loved our students. But one of the reasons they loved our students is because they could come there during the winter semester during tax season. And so we've had as many as 25 to 30 interns with that one company during tax season. So our approach to internships is very much that part of experience. And in fact, I think we'll continue to increase that. Most of our majors require internships. We're considering right now we'll require all students to do an internship. If it's not in their major, then in their minor or another type of internship. One of the real advantages of the learning model is that it, it feeds those abilities of students for uh, experiential learning opportunities like an internship. Uh, we, we find that our students are able to, because of that teach one another component, they're very collaborative and they are very uh, assertive in a good way to be proactive and helpful and uh, we're getting really good response from uh, internship providers saying your students can come in, they can go right to work, they uh, are able to communicate what they don't understand and learn and grow from it. So it's exciting to watch that experiential learning take place. There are a couple of questions that have come up in the chat. Anne asks, is the summer term the same length as spring and fall? And actually, uh, we call our terms fall, winter, and spring because in Rexburg, Idaho, it's cold a lot of the years and so it's kind of a misnomer, but it starts in the spring and April. So one term goes from January to the 1st of April. Uh, the spring term goes from the middle of April to the end of July. And the fall term goes from the 1st of September until just before Christmas. We also have a summer session of seven, six to seven weeks during August. But all of those regular terms are the exact same length. Uh, we're approximately 14 weeks, 13 to 14 in there, but they're all the same. And one of our efforts was to make sure that that spring or that summertime term looked just exactly like the other term. And so this year uh, we came close to our target goal. We want to have the same number of students in winter, spring, or fall so that we have an equal experience. And we do, uh, we, we try to spread out the students as we admit them 
so that we have an even distribution of high school GPA, ACT. Um, we also then have what we call as a track system, and that brings students in for two consecutive semesters and then they're off a semester, and then we can rotate that, admitting even numbers of students to each track, and that allows us to serve probably in the neighborhood of 24, 23 to 24,000 a year, which is probably, I don't know, in the neighborhoods of four, five, six thousand students more than we would otherwise be able to do. I might mention one other part of this too that we've had approached uh, online education in a, with a lot of uh, aggressiveness and, ability and the desire to move forward and so we hope that eventually all of our students will take oh, on the average 15 to 20 percent of their courses online and our online education is the type that goes through a regular semester with weekly assignments, those type of requirements, so it's like a regular class. But also those students who are not here on campus uh, they're on their off semester can be taking courses. Those students who are here on campus can take an online course because it might work into their schedule better. Or those students who are out on internships can take an online course. And so in the sense of efficiency, once again, this online education become a very important part of our year-round calendar. So Larry asks, there's a move to make businesses pay students for internships. Have you encountered this issue? There's a move to make businesses pay students okay. for internships. What we have is a variety of internships, and we try to seek those internships that are the type that pay our students. Now, some particular areas have more of a challenge with it than others do, but a lot of our internships are paying internships. We also try to do some things helping our students. We have about 29% of our students are married. And so that creates some interesting challenges. And so we try to figure out a few ways of scholarshiping and helping those, especially if they have a non-paid internship, because we think that's important, very important in their educational experience. So we have both types, but we try to pursue those that have paid. So Dennis wonders if this is a tough gig if you're not a believer. Can you clarify for us? Tough gig. As, as a faculty member, is it a tough gig? Well, I'm assuming that you have to be a member of the church to be on the faculty, but do you have some percentage of students who are not LDS, and do you have some sense of what their experience is like? We have a very small percentage who are not LDS. It's a, a lower percentage than, than what BYU Provo would have. But we found that uh, their experience uh, in general is very good. In fact, our students, uh, we're very good at helping those students. I know of a young lady, uh, and we probably, I can't give you a number, but I know of a few each year that we have. A young lady from Texas who was here last year and had been friends with a Mormon family, and they helped her come here to school. And, and uh, her roommates and everyone else were totally comfortable in helping her have a great experience. And, um, so as such, I don't think it's a challenge. It certainly is an influence. And that certainly uh, creates some issues by way of saying, well, do I feel comfortable in that much of involvement in a lifestyle? Because uh, our classes start with a word of prayer, and uh, they'll talk about our beliefs in any type of class, from science to an economics to an art class. And so there are those type of things that they would have to deal with. But it's definitely not 
a type of feeling where we want anybody to feel uncomfortable and our students are good young people and taking care of others. So there's a reputation in our area amongst Mormon families that BYU, the students who go to BYU-Idaho go to a very cold environment, uh, geographically the location of, uh, in Rexburg, Idaho, but that they really, really love it. Do you think that that uh, relates to this uh, participation in the teaching and the three process steps? I don't think there's any question about it. It's like being a participant or an observer. And so as you come here, everything that we do, both by way of the classroom, by way of our activities program, we don't have intercollegiate athletics, by way of our involvement in their religious unit, everything is about participation. And so everyone has the opportunity to grow. Now we have a wide spectrum of students. We don't have uh, quite the same average ACT and GPA-wise that BYU Provo would, but we believe that all of them have great potential and we want to have them take advantage of the opportunity of being here because it is about participation and being engaged versus just attending classes or being on the sideline. And we feel that in the end we can take our students and we can compete with anybody by way of when they graduate, where they go on the job market, or what they do as, as contributing to society. Can I get you to give either one of you um, kind of an example of what would happen in a specific class where you felt like the process step of teaching one another was working really well? Uh, yeah, I, I can give an example. We have a uh, senior exhibit project in the program that I teach in, which is in the art program, it's graphic design. And uh, as recent as the last five years before the real uh, impl implementation of the learning model, we would struggle with that senior exhibit project, ha having our students be uh, fully prepared for it, to have them catch the vision of what uh, could be done. And like many of my colleagues all over the world would say, we were in that position of really prodding and pushing and trying to motivate the students. But uh, in my own experience, since the implementation of the learning model, that has completely reversed itself in most cases. And what I now see in my own courses is that uh, this senior exhibit project is very, very large and takes two semesters and is very significant in their uh, portfolio preparation and in their overall educational experience. And now, instead of that pushing and prodding, uh, I find myself, my colleagues, we really have to kind of get out of the way in many cases of the students. They are very active in uh, coming up with the um, project plan, the, the concept, and then creating materials for it. And anecdotally, at least, uh, the reviews we hear back now from uh, employers is that these students are uh, approaching and in many cases uh, coming very level with professional quality work. So it's exciting to see them take advantage of uh, that active learning, that participation that Fenton talked about, and to really capitalize that when it comes to a final product. 
Let me add a couple of other classes just quickly that fall right back to the process steps of teaching one another and ponder and prove. One of those is in our physics courses. They've gone through a process where they require a certain amount of preparation. We come into class and by way of the use of clickers they identify right and wrong answers and then if a certain percentage of them don't achieve it at a certain level then they approach it one way. If a certain percentage do they go another way. But if they didn't achieve the level of the class then they would go into groups and then everyone has the responsibility of teaching everyone in the group and then they would come back out. Now this one of the things I need to mention again. We realize we're not new and unique. Our system of having a campus wide is. Some of the work that's done in this physics class was some work that was adopted from a class in physics at Harvard. Eric Masur that some of you may be familiar with. Well they're doing basically that same type of thing because they found this very effective in the science area to make sure that students prepare because if you don't consistently reinforce preparation, you will not have students being prepared. Another one is in an entrepreneurial class where they use the case study approach and after looking at the ponder and prove, the reflection mode, then the professor changes so that now as they do a case study, then they'll come back to the next class period and have some key points that they have to ponder and prove and then they'll take a test and, uh, and they'll work on it in a group and then they'll take a test and they'll take the average of the group. So it becomes very important that each of those students is helping the others learn and that they're taking their responsibility. So those are just some sample variety. So as you're looking at the online courses, are you finding you're able to uh, still use the same uh, process steps? In fact, the online course has followed our exact model of what we're doing and in some ways is a good example for what we need to do in the individual classroom. But one of the challenges is, uh, is the collaboration and the group work. But we have the parts in process there. In fact, I had a report the other day of a young lady that actually gained more confidence in an online course because she became a team leader and participated and led out whereas in a face-to-face -face course she had been very shy and uh, not willing to participate. So we've tried to follow the same model and one of the important things for people in education to understand is that we actually learn a lot from online to face-to-face -face and face-to-face -to, -face to online and we think both of those areas are helping teach the other and we use the same learning model for both areas. So it, at one place on the website I read something about a learning journal. Is that an active part of the program? You know, it, it really depends on the faculty member. Uh, some will use journals, others will use a wiki, others will use, um, have their students posting PDFs and JPEGs and then students evaluating, reviewing them. Uh, there's probably as many a variety of those as there are faculty members. Good. Well, we're moving right to the Q&A portion. If you've got a question that you haven't uh, put in the chat or that you put in the chat and I didn't see, please feel free to post it again. You can also use the, the hand with the green up arrow to ask a question using the microphone. Um, before we switch to the Q&A, um, can, you, can you put the, uh, the process and the principles in context and, and kind of give a, a discussion of the importance of the principles related to the process? I'll start off there and Kelly, feel free to jump in with 
that you have. I, I mentioned in the beginning that we have five principles and we lay this out with the idea that those principles are very important in establishing a climate or environment for learning. And so as we would mention those, the first one is uh, exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a principle of action and power. And if we were to relate that to other institutions, we might say, are you willing to step beyond the light that you already have, pushing the edge of your current understanding? Uh, the second one, understand that true teaching is done by and with the Holy Ghost. And uh, maybe relating to other institutions, seek truth and recognize the value of all sources of new insight, knowledge, and understanding. The third, lay hold of the Word of God. For other institutions, pursue education as a developmental experience for the whole person. Fourth, act for themselves and accept responsibility for learning and teaching. For others, the same thing, exact same statement. And number five, we use love, serve, and teach one another. And we would just say this could be comparable to respect, serve, and teach one another. And then as they relate to the process, I think Fenton said it the best, those principles are kind of the underlying uh, foundation that sets the, the uh, climate. And then the process become kind of general steps with a variety of different pedagogical methods that can be used in each one of them. There are different prepare techniques, there are different teach one another techniques, there are different ponder techniques. Good, so if you have a question, please feel free to raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow at the bottom of the participant window or to put it in the chat. Um, so uh, a large part of the, the LDS doctrine is around um, intelligence and learning. So I'm guessing that, uh, you know, in many, I could um, think of several uh, scriptures that I'm familiar with in the LDS canon that, that relate to this. Um, uh, we, we talked to Carol Dweck from Stanford um, a couple of, let's see, last week, and she talked about a growth mindset. And it seems to me that the inherent in this belief in education is a sense that people can learn and improve, and, and that's very much uh, in in accordance with Carol's growth mindset. Have you um, thought of it in those terms? Are you even familiar with that particular phrase? Uh, can you give us the phrase one more time? Well, the, the, this is a professor at Stanford who looked at children who uh, believed that intelligence was not fixed, but that it could be grown and improved, and other children who believed that their intelligence was fixed. And she called that a growth mindset. And so it seems as though one advantage that BYU-Idaho has is a church doctrine that really does um, support this concept of everybody's capability of learning and growing. I think we could say from a standpoint that uh, really in relationship to our lives, it's a model of continuous improvement and we'll continue to add upon knowledge and opportunities. And so that's why the learn how to learn or being a lifelong learner is so important. And so when we say that's a major focus for helping our students, we're totally committed to that. We realize that they'll continue to learn and that's what will help them be a very good employee but also a very good citizen and person here upon the earth. And so I think your phrase or statement and the reference back to the earlier uh, comments you made would be exactly true that our students understand that this is a lifelong process 
and the more we can help them learn how to learn, that they can go on, and they're not limited. I'll mention this one thing that kind of stands out to me a little bit right now. I mentioned earlier that we have a pretty good GPA average for students who come here and relatively good ACTs. I think our average is probably 24 in that area. But we also take students with a wide range. And uh, if a student is living a good lifestyle and willing to live by what we call our code of honor or honor code, then we'll take those students. And one of the important parts is that faculty and other students realize that we build those around us. And so we have a firm understanding and perception that this is about everybody doing something with what they have and they all have great potential for learning. Very important part of what we're doing. Good. I, I was intrigued by another phrase that appeared on the website. Um, all learners, student and faculty serve others through diligent preparation, cooperative effort, and teaching one another. Thus, charity replaces competition. Um, do you want to comment on that at all? If you're going to fu function effectively in groups and in teaching one another, you start to understand this perception that goes to our principle number five, love, serve, and teach one another. Because a lot more learning can take place when people care about each other and want to share learning versus those who are competing for a grade. And the only way they can look good is if somebody else looks worse. And so that's an important concept here. And so it goes back to that number five principle of our learning model, that you have to be invested in helping others. We also understand that when you help others and teach one another, that you'll actually learn better yourself. And so it's a combined thing, even though that might appear a little bit selfish. If you do a better job of helping others learn and teaching others, uh, everybody improves with it. So it's not about competition. Now that has some ramifications with grading, and I wouldn't say that all of our faculty are perfect in that mode of where they're at. But that comes back to our process now where we're starting to work more on outcomes and expectations and raising the bar, and then help others to realize that they can help each other learn. So Peggy and Noah are both interested in understanding more about the use of technology at BYU-Idaho. I see the question about uh, learning model uh, leveraging technology to facilitate the teaching of the spirit. And that, that's an intriguing question. Um, I, I suppose that technology has the ability to uh, allow us to learn both in normal cognitive ways, but also through uh, touching our minds and our hearts through the spirit as well. So yeah, I think it's very capable. How do we do it? Uh, our current online is set up uh, much like a traditional classroom, and it uh, tries to use those process steps uh, just as we would in a normal classroom. Students are at a distance from each other in many cases, but they're still asked to work collaboratively online and to share uh, and assist each other along the way. I think one other factor there that's very important to us is that the, the students who are attending this university are trying to live a good life. We realize all people have their challenges, but the individuals who attend here are trying to live a good life, trying to take care of each other. And we have the same basic expectations of our faculty. And so you'll see in general, and all of us can experience this, when we work with other people, 
we can tell who the people are that are genuine. It doesn't take us long to figure out that we enjoy working with that person, we enjoy being around that person. Well, whether we're using technology, whether we're using face-to-face -face approach of faculty to students, uh, genuine lifestyle of an individual contributes to how much you're going to feel the spirit and the opportunity to learn from that type of uh, situation. Okay, we've got about six minutes left. So again, if you have a question, please feel free to put it in the chat or to raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow at the bottom of your participant window. Um, the only research that takes place at BYU-Idaho is uh, teaching, right? One more time, sorry. So there, uh, there isn't really a lot of research at BYU-Idaho. I think I read that the only research that's done is in the area of teaching. Well, I think two things I'd mention here, and then Kelly can add to this, but we want all of our faculty to be actively involved in teaching. But we also realize they have their academic area where they need to stay current and continue to study, but the research on teaching, learning and teaching, those type of things. We have research, but we call it mentored student research, and we just made a big push this year to start to improve that option, that we want faculty involved in research if they're mentoring students and the active participant really is the student doing the research. So the two things, there is mentor-student research, uh, not at the level of graduate school, but undergraduate, and we're trying to become very good at undergraduate mentor-student research, but also we want our faculty to stay current in their discipline, but to study learning and teaching and to apply the best. And I would just add that we try to be uh, quite um, liberal in the use of uh, leaves. We make those available after completing five years. And faculty will do research, personal research, but we always encourage that to be connected back to the classroom. So in addition to the mentored student research, we're also allowing and encouraging our faculty to take a leave and uh, do things that build them so that they can be more powerful in the classroom. What about sports programs? I'm seeing a question or two pop up here on BYU Provo and their football and independence, but I'll just mention this. When we became a four-year institution, we had had a very successful junior college sports program, probably one of the top one or two uh, in the United States. But the decision was made at that point in time that we would focus on the experience of the students on this campus. And so we have a very large and inclusive what we call activities program to where they, uh, more so than a regular intramural sports, they'll have teams of practice, they use student coaches, things like that. And, and you'll see something similar at Notre Dame and uh, I think some of the military institutions. But our goal is that we invest in having students participate and being involved here on campus. And so we decided that the expense and the direction and the challenges of that are better served by having students as participants on the campus. And I don't see for the near, we're not going to go back that direction. And we, again, we just see that as an extension of what happens in the classroom, that participatory uh, feel that happens in our classrooms happens after hours with the students on the basketball court, the football field, et cetera. We have a very heavy investment in the fields and courts here for our students. It probably is equal to a majority of schools across the United States. We have very great facilities for what the students participate in, excellent facilities.
Okay, we're going to give our last question to Jethro. Jethro, I've given you the microphone. I think you've raised your hand for that purpose. To turn it on, you click on the microphone icon on the lower left of your screen. So my question was about portfolios. And Alan, can you mute yours? Um, you, you mentioned that some portfolios take um, are very big and have even a two-semester senior project in it. And then um, my question is, how are those uh, equalized across the content areas? Is business much more heavily invested in portfolios than language arts or vice versa? And also, do you have a standard uh, piece of technology that you use to coordinate uh, the student's portfolio so they can have it with them after they leave? The last one's a great idea, but uh, no, they're not standardized. They are uh, dependent on the disciplines. Each discipline has a uh, its own uh, unique portfolio approach depending on what's needed either to go into the industry to work or needed to go on to grad school. You know, we I think one of the things as we approach our work on outcomes, it's one that will have a lot more consideration areas with e-portfolios, certainly we can look at some great models like Alberno and what they do and we're definitely not to that extent. So this follow-up on Kelly, it depends on the discipline. We've got a lot of work to do in this area, but it is definitely one of our targets that we continue to work on. So I, we, we've reached our moment here. I really want to thank you both for coming on. I, I know there's, this is a lot of work to take out of the middle of your day and coordinate in this way uh, and, and to participate, but I really appreciate it. And thanks to Andy who helped arrange this. I'm clapping for you there using the clapping hand. Uh, Jethro, I had a follow-up question. And while I show the final slides, um, he asks about accreditation groups and the BYU-Idaho approach. Are you passing or failing in their eyes? very successful in their eyes. We probably move forward with four-year accreditation faster than most institutions. They really like what we are doing. We have some challenges with it, but there's no concern whatsoever. We received accreditation at a very early time in our four-year juncture, and so we feel very good about that. We use accreditation as a tool to help us move forward with our um, mission and vision, not as something to jump through. We try to use accreditation to help us. No, I just add, I see a couple of questions there about acceptance to grad schools and stuff. Our students do very well, and you, your audience may be interested to go to our website and look at our foundations program. It is quite innovative uh, in and of itself, which is our general education program. Okay, thanks both to Kelly and to Fenton. Really appreciate your coming on today. Again, thanks to Andy. Thanks to those of you who have attended. Sure appreciate it. Please do look at our upcoming schedule tomorrow night, George Siemens on connectivism uh, and lots of fun coming up. Thanks for joining us, Kelly and Fenton. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. We enjoyed it. Thank you much.